Okay. Okay, we're back with <laughs> the first uh, episode in the reboot. Uh, I will talk about the reboot in another episode, but this episode specifically for what is decolon decolonial theory and what is decolonization and what does it look like. So I have uh, Mylene with me and Derek. Just want to introduce yourselves. Yeah, for sure. I'll jump in. Um, my name is Mylan Tatusis from Treaty 6 Territory up here in Canada, host of Radical Narrative. Technically, I guess, a PhD candidate, but also do a lot of community work based myself out of my Indian Reserve, Palmaker Indian Reserve up here. That's where I'm currently living now. Um, that's who I am. That's where I come from. I'm Plains Cree, Nakoda, um, indigenous for, you know, listeners who don't know the tribal terminology but that's who i am from canada northern plains northern prairie turtle island <laughs> hey, i'm i'm derek uh i'm black and tomorrow um and i uh i'm just an anti-colonial communist who you know does all sorts of cultivation stuff also but yep thank you uh so this episode is um so you know in my in those five years i had the podcast uh one question that constantly came up is what is decolonial theory and what is decolonization and people would ask me like where do i start learning about this and I asked a lot of time to think, and I feel like I decided, you know, since I was doing this reboot uh, to talk about this subject as the first episode. So when people ask me, I can just, you know, give them the episode to listen to. So what is decolon de what is decolonial theory and what's decolonization? Uh, in my point of view, what I wrote down is indigenous theory that critiques and tries to abolish settler colonization uh, by replacing colonial Espitemologies, SB, SB, SB sorry, with the, with the colonial ones. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into what is, you know, what is the difference between colonization, settler colonization. Uh, do you guys want to jump in? What is the colonial theory in your point of view? Uh, so decolonial theory? Uh, yes. Oh, decolonization, yeah. Yep. Oh, decol yeah, decolonization. <clears throat> I guess a decolonial theory would just be the theory of decolonization, right? Probably most uh, direct definition. Uh, and decolonization, of course, there's just a lot of theory. Uh, like, obviously, we were talking about Rick the uh, dependency school that came out of South America, quote unquote, South America. Um, and, you know, there's the, all the African schools of thought, the like post, quote unquote, post-colonial schools of thought in Africa. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to draw from. It's a, it's a huge field to navigate. Uh, a huge field of study and thought and theory that is uh, 
yeah, it's it spans across like tendencies, you know, spans across, uh, you know, con countries and continents. Um, yeah, there's a lot of writers. You know, Ho, Ho Chi Minh contributed to anti-colonial theory. Um, all all of the, you know, uh, all of the Marxist theorists contributed in some way. Um, but yeah, it's a it's just a, a field of study uh, and a, a decolonial theory, anti-colonial theory, uh, and it is, um, yeah, it's it, it's the theory of decolonization and and colonialism in general. I'd say, um, not just the process of colonization, but mm -hmm. the analyzing of colonialism and how it exists. Yeah. I like it. <clears throat> yeah, I like how you brought into the conversation, like the theory, the Marxist theory, you know, in particular, people who've experienced colonialism, colonization, come on, coming up with the awarenesses and insights to say, hey, you know, the world's fucked up. And what do we need to do to ultimately go forward, um, liberate ourselves, but ultimately even deconstruct the systems that are oppressing us, or the systems that are the creating, you know, the, the fuckery. I've been using the word fuckery a lot because of, you know, just, just the way the world is right now. Um, and navigating that, like how, ultimately how to deconstruct these systems, these colonial systems, these Western systems that are oppressing our people, right? And that's tied into settler colonialism. That's tied into a very physical practice of wanting to embody liberation. Why do I, why, why am I living the way I'm living? And for indigenous people, we have the reference point of hearing the oral histories and hearing of the resistances that our ancestors took place. So that physical aspect of embodying that is like, okay, well, I'm going to go about wanting to, to um, I hate to use the word reconnect, because that's also like, we could have a whole podcast on reconnection and how it exists today, but embodying that like that resistance to, to these systems, uh, colonial systems, Western systems. And, and, and uh, Rick opened up with epistemologies, right? That how, why are we thinking the way we're thinking? Why are we living the way we're living? Um, and for me, like decolonial theory, um, it, it, it is the ideas, right? It is the ideas, the, the constructing of the problem. Um, but decolonial practice is, is, is the problem solving. How do we go about solving these problems? Um, and one key aspect with indigenous theory is that it is coming from the lived experience of colonialism, of being oppressed, of identifying that this world that we're ultimately living in now, it doesn't have our best interests at heart, that it, it is inherently violent, um, unsupportive, lacks kindness, lacks empathy. And uh, in that way, it's also very psychological, right? Getting into the Fanonian conversation um, that, you know, colonization is very psychological. Therefore, decolonization embodies a lot of these, these practices. Um, but then at the same time, we could embolden and we could um, articulate further through the written word decolonization by making reference, obviously, to, you know, Derek, uh, what Derek talked about in terms of the theory, the uh, Marxist theory. And um, pushing back and creating that that resistance towards ultimately capitalism and settler colonialism. 
Yeah, thank you. And I, yeah, everything, every what everybody said is is good. Um, and I agree one hundred percent. Um, I want to talk about the difference between colonization and settler colonization. And the way I see it is, I want to give an example of like, um, also India, right? The British, mm. from what from what I understand, the British weren't trying to make India their home, right? Mm. And the difference in America is they believed in manifest destiny <laughs> where they you know colonized the land they took it over and they were trying to replace uh indigenous peoples on the land so that's the difference between colonization like in india or like settler colonization in, in the americas where they're trying to replace indigenous peoples you know does anybody have a, a, a agree or disagree on this yeah i'll speak to um I like the terminology. I don't know where it's, but I'm pretty sure it's bar borrowed. Uh, Dr. Lushaba, Luazi Lushaba uses the term uh, col colony of domination is, mm. is the, the dis uh, you know, the other distinct form of colonialism uh, as opposed to settler colonialism. But yeah, so the difference between the two settler colonialism is a genocidal project more so than just a purely extractive project where they the colonizers uh to perform genocide in order to uh supplant the the indigenous population and establish a colony a settler colony uh you know the the yeah, I don't think there was anything quite like the United States that that would probably be like the greatest example, um, you know, ne next to, of course, like the rest of the the, uh, the continent. I think, I think it makes sense to just think of it all as a, a continental, you know, or even the hemisphere like this whole hemisphere um, as one project. Uh, oh, but then, then you get to get to that and then you're like, it, it is all interconnected with Australia and, you know, o Oceania and, and Asia. Like it's, it's a global, yeah. like it's, it's hard to separate settler colonialism from colonialism, European colonialism at large, because it's this monolith like hegemony, mm -hmm. glo global press, uh, global structure. So it's like it's, yeah, it's it's a hegemony. It's a global hegemony. And like we're, Mylan, you were talking about with culture, culture, and it being uh, psychological, psychological. You know, aspects of it are intertwined with dominant ideologies do dominant cultures you could say you, the euro colonial culture is the dominant culture right like we all have to know stuff about europe like everyone has to know europe's history and europe's cultures um, that's like hegemonic there's there's no there's not other cultures that are globally uh globally established like as a hegemony like that so yeah it's 
so settler colonialism, while it's distinct from uh, colonies of domination, it's all based on and enforced by the Euro-colonial world, which would be like what we call the West, obviously, and Australia. It's hard to call Australia the West, I guess, or, you know, whatever. That's Eurocentric anyway, so... Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that irks me and I agree, like, I like where this conversation is going. Um, but one of the things that irks me is that colonialism is often viewed as an era, like a colonial era. Like it's, uh, it's viewed as like a historical event and practice from the surface level, like not, not from like the level of diving into theory or things like that. Um, so obviously you think of empire, right? You think of British, you think of Spain and, you know, all these, colonial projects that existed um, in the past but at the same time it's it's not it's an ongoing thing right and I, and I feel like we're all in the same understanding of that in terms of your listeners and and the content of this podcast and, and what we do and how we think but there's the, I think that's like the separation that tends to happen and, and the glitch that settlers go through when it comes to understanding settler colonialism because it's almost like there's they want to remove themselves from the colonial history while at the same time not calling into question how did they how legitimately like how did they get here <laughs> like how did they get here and then how did these power structures and systems and paradigms come to exist here how did they come to exist here because settler colonialism is an infrastructure and we're going to talk about that like later on in the podcast when we talk about being anti-capitalist and anti-colonial and it actively regenerates itself like settler colonialism actively regenerates itself it actively seeks out like fresh meat to to reinvigorate the project um to maintain itself politically environmentally economically socially right and these these things tend to show up so one of the like big the thing the difference for me with colonialism and settler colonialism is that while well, one, there is no difference, technically speaking, but at the same time, there's almost like this shift to want to position colonialism as a historical event uh, and then glitch out when it comes to the settler colonialism conversations. Um, and, and that's not fair. Like that's legitimately like rewriting history because and from my perspective, literally me recording this on Palm Acre Indian Reserve, I'm still surrounded by settler colonialism i'm surrounded by agribusiness i'm surrounded by the economics of that like that infrastructure exists and at the same time you know the average settler you know that i feel like people are starting to come to terms and, and become more aware but at the same time there's almost like there's this glitch like there's almost like this this psychological not wanting to to position themselves in that frame um and and with that being said i feel like I don't know. There's, there's a lot we could talk about settler colonialism where it's at in terms of psychology today, in terms of like Canadian citizens, American citizens. Um, but, but without getting too carried away, I, I feel like, you know, settler colonialism is, is the active ongoing colonial project to remove us, to isolate us, to marginalize us, and ultimately even assimilate us. And we see that happening politically and economically. And it's becoming clearer for people to see it happening politically and economically, where, you know, entrepreneurship becomes the discourse, where, uh, you know, settler political parties become the discourse. Um, but for us, that's all settler colonialism. That's like, you know, the goal of settler colonialism is to assert itself and legitimize itself as the only means of survival for our people, which ultimately leads to assimilation. 
Um, so yeah, I, I think that's how I would analyze that on, on the very surface level without getting too deep is that, you know, there's an ongoing, very real settler colonial project that's tied to colonization and colonialism of the past. And for us, it's an ongoing event. Like it's an ongoing experience to observe it and be critical of it in that way. I like that you said that it, it, it means to assimilate us. You know, on one part, it, 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 it tries to replace us. But I think assimilation is a version of replacement too, right? And mm -hmm. I think this is, we'll talk about this later with the whole Marxist uh, yeah. part, um, how like settler Marxists still want to assimilate us into their vision of liberation, right? Yeah. They still have the, the colonial mindset of assimilation. Let's, let's assimilate everybody into a, a Marxist settler state. And we'll talk yeah. about that later, right? But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a good analogy right there. Um, but as we, go ahead, Derek. Well, I just wanted to, um, to comment on um, what you're talking about, Mylan, having to do with uh, time, like indigenous peoples being relegated to a past time. Um, there's the, I, I recently have been learning about this thanks to uh, some uh, recommendations from Dr. Lushaba at, as usual. Uh, and uh, he, he turned me on to Johann Fabian's uh, Time and the Other. Uh, mm -hmm. I start, I've started it. Um, at, and there's, there's a, uh, a term he coins in, in that book, uh, allochronic discourse, which is essential. It's like a critique of anthropology where he talks about the, uh, anything outside of European conception of, of eras and ages and, and history and, uh, which is all, you know, the base of anthropology for the most part. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's this treating of, of European society as this, uh, observer. It's like the observer society and they observe, you know, non-European society. And the non-European society is an object of study for european society and that's mm -hmm. how how that's how the discipline of of anthropology works and it relegates indigenous peoples to non-european all non-european peoples to a past time uh where they uh where it's not there's an uh inequality between that and uh a disparity between that and you know, the Europeans exist in the present, you know, and they're, they're observing indigenous, you know, past existence. I like it. I like it. And that makes a lot of sense. Like definitely like there's indigenous communities where you will hear the oral history of, you know, contact and resistance and warfare as if those stories just happened like last month. Like the oral history is intact in terms of how how it's explained, and the family systems are still intact. So it's like an ongoing event 
right? And of course, like I, I feel like a lot of people are coming to terms and familiar with Patrick Wolf, right? His whole frame of mind around settler colonialism. But from the indigenous perspective, yeah, like it, it, we're still in this era. We're still in this era. And from our perspective and our oral histories, it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing observation and experience. Whereas again, like the average settler, the average Canadian, or you know, to a certain degree, someone with Canadian citizenship, tends to view things like you're highlighting it, Derek, with, with your resource and, and the perspective there is that, oh, it's a past event or your people were here before and you're a remnant. Uh, but it doesn't exist like that. <laughs> Legitimately, it doesn't exist like that in my consciousness and my observations. Yeah, I have that book. I just haven't read it yet. I need to, I need to dig deep into that book. Um, was it Johan, right? Time of the Other? Yeah, you have Johan, yeah. Fabian. Yeah, and, and I have. Time and the other. Yeah. All right, so um, I'm going to talk about the pillars of settler colonization. I really feel like a lot of uh, settlers, uh, they see colonization as only economic, right? And they're kind of like class reductionists. Um, and I tell them that, you know, settler colonization is, is more than just economics. Um and in my point of view, there's different pillars of cellular colonization. And if we don't get rid of every single one of them during decolonization, that pillar is gonna be like, like mold, growing back the, the pillars that used to exist. It's like, like a fungus, right? It's like a disease. So if we don't destroy every single pillar, it's just, we're not really decolonizing. So. This, I'm going to talk about the pillars real quick, and you guys jump in. The first oh. pillar is economic, right? And my, this is the list I made. You know, other people have other lists. That's fine, uh, and some of them overlap. So, and I, I will. I'm not saying these. These are the concrete, you know, like final say, say so pillars. But you know, this is this are my list, right? Uh, economic, which is like capitalism. Obviously, everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> that pillar. Uh, the second one is political, governmental, military. So it's like seller governments, federal and local, seller state, uh, militaries, uh, pro-colonial civ uh, civilian militias, and settler nationalism and identities. The third one is uh, colonial spiritual power structures, which is like Christianity, right? And uh, Tayaki Alfred speaks about this in his book, Wasase, how Christians have this one way of thought. It actually helps them colonize. So in, in Christianity, it's like you have to believe in Jesus Christ or else, you know, you're going to hell. So you do everything this religion tells you, you know, even kill people, colonize in the name, name of, of that religion, which was... It's what they did for manifest destiny, right? So the spiritual power structures, I mean, that's the third one that, you know, and also colonizes our communities to tell them to turn the other cheek, right? It tells our communities to turn the other cheek when, when they get colonial violence put upon them, right? But at the same time, they tell, you know, um, colonized, colonized people, colonized communities, you know, uh, or Jesus put you in the situation to test you. And it's like, it put them in a situation because all these other nonsense, what they say, you know, I think, you know, that, that Christian churches should be abolished from this continent. My point of view and decolonization, right? The third one, I mean, the fourth one is cultural, right? 
Um, and this is like a relationship to the land, the animals with each other, uh, this patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, um, monogamy, materialism. It's part of also economics, right? Hyper-individualism, right? And that's the fourth one. And then the fifth one is science with colonial epistemologies replacing indigenous ones. Uh, we have what, you know, within the sciences, uh, the, the study of eugenics, you know, when Nazism came about. And that was, people thought, you know, people really thought this is science, this is truth. So, you know, colonial science is fucking racist. And Kim Tauber talks about that too, right? So all these different pillars, if we don't knock each pillar down and one of them stays up, the other ones are going to creep back slowly. Even if it's just like the churches, we leave, we do everything else and we leave churches alone, the, the settlers will use that to creep back, you know? So does anybody have words on this? Uh, sure. Uh, as as for the churches, I, I totally, they're definitely in colonial institutions, um, the churches themselves. And it's like, yeah, maybe if you want to partake in Abrahamic religions, like, you you know, you don't have to have an institution to do that even. So it's like, you know, yeah, like as institutions, the, the religious institutions obviously uh, have a just horrible genocidal, uh, you know, legacy here on this continent on these two continents really uh, everywhere outside of europe and in europe but you know uh yeah the especially the catholic church um but also puritans you know puritans you know aren't really any any better their history in terms of on this continent what they're responsible for um so uh, or Puritans and and uh, whatever other uh, denominations, you know, whatever other Protestant denomination. But yeah, yeah. As for the other pillars, certainly uh, these these are all uh, these all speak to like the cognitive domination in general, or at least a couple of them. A lot of them are real like material uh you know not 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 that the cognitive aspects of this aren't also material and real but but the uh the more tangible um things such as land and and uh the environment and um you know ec economies and resources um that are covered under the economic, you know, the for that first pillar that you mentioned. Uh, but yeah, certainly in terms of political, I mean, go government and military, that's all very tangible as well. Uh, it, but like the political, the colonial, spiritual, like like we were just talking about with um, religion, because religion is a core part of European epistemology, like European history is you know the the most possibly foundational culture you know 
to dominate Europe would be Christian culture, uh, you could say. So uh, ever since, you know, especially, yeah, the uh, whenever it was introduced to Europe. Um, but yeah, even to this day, but, but yeah, all the cultural as well, the science, even uh, that all that all speaks to the overall cognitive domination of Europeans and the Euro-colonial world. Uh, I say that Euro-colonial world to, to just uh, elucidate on that for people. The Euro-colonial world would be Europe and everywhere that Europeans dominate, which would be the set, especially the settler colonies, mostly the settler colonies. That would be this, uh, this hemisphere really, but particularly, you know, you could, we could just talk about this northern continent, but uh, yeah, the that that would that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Euro colonial world, and that's the they the Euro colonial world, you know, which is a not a multicultural world, which we always have to say that people people want to think that we're in some sort of post racial society, multicultural society when it's not it's a it's a racial uh it's a racial caste system with europeans at the top at the top caste and and yeah especially in this euro colonial part of the world they they have a hegemony and they're enforcing this uh hegemony of thought this uh cognitive domination on the world thank you thank you Mane? Yeah, yeah, I like, I like, I like what you said. Like, um, in terms of the pillars of settler colonialism, because we do need to construct these problems. We need to identify them clearly. That you know, there's these systems and these infrastructures, and in that's why I like to say settler colonial infrastructure, because people begin to realize, oh, there is actually a very physical, real project taking place. Right? It's not necessarily like a feel good, um, like reconciliatory happiness, find the happiness relationship. No, there's very real, like structural um uh things that are taking place that are oppressing us you know marginalizing us taking advantage of our lands and territories exploiting us and our in our in our lands and territories but yeah i agree with the, the pillars of settler colonialism one aspect though i would really um add like i would like to add is also like so settler colonialism exists as a paradigm right so in every one of these pillars there's a certain way of thinking about them like obviously one of the most common ones that that we i clash with personally is like the, the notion of private property or the notion of ownership um and and that really clashes with indigenous land-based practices uh, no trespassing laws uh again like private property this really weird uh concept that doesn't necessarily serve any sort of collective approach to living on a landscape in a meaningful healthy way and that's a paradigm like property is the paradigm like you encounter like one of my big triggers, like one of the, like to talk about like my, my late father, who was really influential in my life. Like one of the things he always told us growing up was, was not to fight over food. Like don't fight over food, share, share food. And, you know, I was, I was in a, in a dad zone, like a dad way of thinking one day and my daughters, um, I made them lunch and, and they started to fight over like grapes or something. And, uh, and I remember in that moment, I kind of just like opened my mouth and I said, Hey, uh, don't fight over food. We're not pilgrims, right? 
and then my daughters are four and two, right? So me and my dad way of thinking and doing like just going about my day and thinking about these things all the time that just naturally came out. And, and I realized, you know, that, that, that was the value system that was instilled in me is that when we look at colonial settler, colonial history and paradigm, there is a degree of selfishness. There is a degree of taking things. And so like a lot of these pillars exist in paradigms. And for me to like hark on our value systems, to deconstruct those paradigms and to even raise my daughters in terms of thinking about our value systems in that are heavily contrasted against settler colonial value systems is, is a form of resistance for me. But at the same time, yeah, these are very measurable infrastructure problems we have to uh, pinpoint and ultimately target to the point of where we're willing to deconstruct them and, and face them head on and, and literally say, hey, like, you know, we, we don't do that here. That's, that's not in our belief system. Um, and we got to come up with the alternative and we got to implement those alternatives. Um, and I like it. I really like it. And then also, like, there's even aspects of settler colonialism in terms of, like, the physical environment social environment right we talked about that but yeah everything you said science cultural um the colonial spiritual power structures is very real and yeah like what sase you know making reference to that technically in a, in a settler colonial religious project you could be christian anywhere in the world and that did serve uh, colonialism that did serve the oppression of our our, our lands and territories here um so yeah there's a lot like there's a lot for me to to really add to that but yeah that's I think narrowing it down from my perspective. So I know one thing that people are going to, especially sellers are going to say is that, oh no, they want to just, you know, do religious persecution the moment they hear this. But it's like, mm -hmm. you know, seller colonization uses Christianity for spiritual religious persecution of our cultures, mm -hmm. right? which it has. So for us to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do this on our land, or practice these things on our land, it's not asking for much in my point of view. You know, uh, the Christian religion has always, since the beginning of uh, its inception, the Catholic Church has always, you know, uh, seeped its way into political scenes. The Roman Empire broke apart and then half of it became the, dominated by the Catholic Church, right? And even now, you know, growing up, yeah. I... Uh, you know, in the U.S., they teach you as a young kid, oh, the separation of church and state. That's a fucking lie, because yeah. there's there's <laughs> there's uh, lobby lobbyists that are for the church. There's PACs, you know, uh, polit political action committees that fund money for candidates that then you know support these mega churches. So there's no such thing as to me, in my point of view, as separation of church and state in the U.S. I think it's 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 a lie, and I think. You know, if we keep that, that pillar of, of Christianity or Christian institutions on this continent, they're just going to seep in and try to recolonize, right? So, yeah, for sure. And, you know, honestly, from my perspective as, as an educator, like, you know, being in academia for like 10, 15 years, I, I do have, you know, undergraduates show up to my Indigenous Studies courses who are Roman Catholic who are struggling with this and there is this tendency for them to to want to um, obviously like remedy and come to terms with their own history in terms of you know how how Catholicism or certain aspects of Christianity made its way in the territory but there is a conundrum for them like there is a legitimate conundrum for them when they're actually witnessing and experiencing the impact that 
that religious project had on our people. So obviously in Canada, you know, residential school system, very vivid, very um, visceral experiences to that happened to our family systems there at the hand of, you know, people who were ultimately calling themselves Christians, right? So there, there is a very real aspect of, of certain generation now, how I feel observing uh, from my perspective that are and notions and uh and figure it out on, on that end from my perspective as an indigenous person the the point of contention for me is when a settler resorts to power and control because in settler colonialism there's an inherent privilege and structure that they have the power and they have the control so even in the conversation like how you brought it up rick was like oh there's going to be settlers out here that are going to you know be triggered well, for me, there's almost like an intergenerational like power and control genetic memory that kicks into the point of where like you flick the switch and it's it's to the point of potential violence. It's to the point of potential yeah. oppression. And like for indigenous people, we always talk about intergenerational trauma, right? How we have that, you know, and, and that's a theory in terms of, you know, our past experiences coming up for us. And then for me, it's also almost like settlers have this intergenerational violence that if you push the button just right, they get genocidal pretty quickly. And, and I know that for a fact, like I know that oh, for a fact, do. I've experienced yeah. that. And I've seen that and being conscious of it now and knowing where that button is, it's almost like an offensive strategy where you could elicit it and um, bring it up to, and it's just, it's just, it's literally just beneath the surface. It's literally just beneath the surface of, of, you know, I always say in, in rural Saskatchewan, there's the farmer's wave. So when you're driving in rural Saskatchewan and you're passing, a farmer or someone from rural Sask on the road, they're going to throw up their hands and give you the wave, right? And people say, oh, rural Saskatchewan so friendly. It's so nice, you know? But no, nah, like you go to Coffee Row and you start talking about, oh, you know, this is our traditional territory. This is our land and territory. We're here. I mean, violence is just around the corner, right? So there is this really real visceral conversations that there's to have in terms of power and control why is it so challenging or why is it so hard for people to to release some sense of like control in their life right and and to the point of where you know like why do we have to resort to violence and like why do why do they have to resort to violence and i'm saying that in a very like uh in a way where I want people to reflect on that. Like, why is it when we doc- talk about decolonization, you know, people come out like guns blazing. It's like, no, like if you want to have a very real conversation about settler colonialism and help us, then let's sit down and have a very real conversation about this without, you know, someone trying to get genocidal. <laughs> that, you know, that reminds me a lot of, you know, when I talk to settler Marxists and they always fetishize about putting people in guillotines right or like yeah. being the rich or putting people in gulags i always tell them like this is like a weird fetish for you like mm. to like fantasize about like having revolution and then being like ultra violent after that's you know i yeah. tell them that that's not revolution that's you being like a settler <laughs> because yeah. when i think of decolonization or revolution i think about rebuilding society where you know, everybody benefits from it yeah. and and they're talking about you know, putting people in camps, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and put, you know, like I said, like putting people in guillotines. I'm just like, that's not, that's not something I'm okay with, you know, yeah, like, sure. yeah. So, you know, it's like, uh, it's almost like, 
I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird, weird thing. Like if you disagree with me after the revolution, you're gonna be put in a guillotine. It's like no, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's not even a thing. And like that's not For sure. how. And I, I feel like if a if a if a capitalist settler or anybody hears that, yeah, especially if they're native, I, I always tell them like you tell native people that anybody that disagrees with you is going to be put in camps or a guillotine. They're going to be like, who is this crazy seller? Why? I, I, I'm pretty sure any native person that's not a Marxist will hear that and think, I don't want a Marxism. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, so to me, it's just like, you know, people, th th these sellers talk in a way where uh, native people are not going to be okay with the, their rhetoric. And, you know, are, yeah. are, are they, I don't know why they fetishize violence so much because like you yeah, said, no. they're inherently violent. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and their religion, going back to religion, yeah, you know, exactly. it, 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 it kind of like promotes that shit. So, yeah. yeah, it does. And yeah, like, like literally the origins of Christianity in Europe, like European Christianity, I think that we could have a whole podcast on that and literally talk about it. Like literally the crusades and, you know, them, you know, proclaiming stealing ancient relics to justify their their faith in europe but it is inherently violent and i agree 100 is that um i don't i don't know why the assumption is um uh, like kill or be killed in some of the political conversations in particular in america and the united states or america like north america canada and the united states is that again like settlers tend to go on the offensive very quickly and again, like, you know, and I know we had conversations about this and I see it on, on social media in terms of um, some of the indigenous community where we notice settlers tend to make the assumption that we're going to like flip the script in terms of what they've done to us, right? In terms of like trying to eradicate them or erase them genocidally <laughs> and and for me that that was never in the equation um even like even just in context to like having daughters and children like i would never target children of any you know race or like political divide but at the same time again when you look at settler colonialism there was a deliberate targeting of indigenous children exactly. to maintain the settler and colonial women. project yeah exactly so it's like we do have these ethics and morals that are inherently indigenous that are tied to our place in our community. And of course, you know, there's going to be like the average, you know, armchair scholar that's going to say, well, you know, indigenous people did commit have warfare and stuff. You know what? We could sit down and have a conversation about that. <laughs> and and uh, and I'll, I'll, like we could explain the ethics and moralities of our form of warfare and how things exactly. really did obviously get you know, tense during colonialism, right? When, when, you know, marginalization and, and food systems were being impacted and there was a, a diaspora of settlers moving West that really created political and economic tensions. Of course we could talk about that, but for the most part, like, I mean, there is an inherent belief system of, of peace and literally like, I'm not going to fight over food with people <laughs> like that. Yeah. That's literally what it boils down to me. We have these morals and value systems. But at the same time, like if you just, if I sat there, if I went to Coffee Row in the local town and, and sat down with farmers, number one, they probably would look at me like I'm crazy or threaten me. But if we were to have these conversations, it would be very unsettling because that paradigm is ingrained in terms of like an inherent selfishness and power and control that what's mine is mine. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't necessarily work like that for us as indigenous people. And again, that's why our, our indigenous theory around decolonization 
uh, political organizing, restructuring, deconstructing things isn't necessarily, yeah, like you say, like guillotines. <laughs> I mean, it, there's individuals out there that probably have their own narratives, their own traumas around violence. But for the most part, like, I think there's definitely our own morals and ethics that, that, um, and again, I think we should talk more about it because I don't necessarily talk more about it. I position it too much, but like, I'm not, I'm not building a guillotine anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how to build one. So <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's so violent, like even European torture tactics, Spaniard torture tactics, like everything was pretty inherently like grotesque and wild. And, um, and of course, there's origin stories to that over there that we could talk about politically and economically likely. But yeah, it's just, it's not my, it's not my bag of, uh, it's something I don't want to talk about too much, I guess. That's fine. I think we should move on to how this, uh, decolonial theory fit into Marxism. And what I wrote down, I actually did a quote from The Principle of Contradiction by Torquil Lawson. Excuse me, give me one second. No problem. Sorry, I have kids. Yeah. <laughs> but um, um, <laughs> but uh, it, it talks about the dialectical materialism. It says it looks at the general laws of how the world acts. This requires knowledge about the world and the natural, human, and social sciences. Without it, no general laws can be formulated. This is by Torquil Lawson, right? And I mentioned this on your podcast, Mylan, on Radical Narrative, mm -hmm. was I, how I see uh, dialectical, dialectical materialism or Marxism. It's kind of like it, it is a science. Right. And yeah. it's kind of like, you know, uh, us having uh, a spear or bow and arrow. That's a science. You need specific wood, you know, the tensions mm -hmm. and, you know, the angles and shooting, you know, and, and the distance. But a gun's the same thing. So when, when the settlers mm -hmm. came, they brought guns. So, you know, as as a Comanche, our history, we adopted, you know, the horse culture, um, we adopted, you know, like guns and, and you know, European technology to fight back against colonization. So I see Marxism as a science developed by a European to study European fuckery, European capitalism yeah. culture, right? So yeah. in my point of view, it's like me grabbing the gun and using it at, in my defense. So I'm grabbing Marxism to analyze settler colonization mm -hmm. But in a way where I can repurpose the gun to, I can better fight with it, you know, fight with it better, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if I, if, if I, if I, you know, people will say Marxism is a colonial uh, construct, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if, I, if, so the natives mm -hmm. that fought back with guns, the natives that fought settlers with guns, were they less native because they fought them with guns? Or with horses, you know, am I less native because I use a fucking cell phone? No, right? Mm -hmm. So I think me using Marxism and shaping it into, into decolonial Marxism, right? Doesn't make us less native. It, it actually enhances our warfare, you know? And that's my point of view. Does anybody have an insight on that? Yeah, I would, I would definitely second that. Like, we definitely need tools in our toolkit. And obviously, Marxism is coming out of... Um, you know, measuring the conditions in Europe, like very real measurable conditions. And, and unfortunately, as a result of colonialism, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of fuckery here now. Like we're literally dealing with poverty and as oppressed peoples. And 
And, you know, the reality is that a lot of our people are, are working shitty jobs and are underpaid and, and we need a very good, strong economic political analysis to navigate this world that we're in. So any tool that helps us, I feel, is very credible. Like we should utilize it. We should utilize theory. We should dive into the knowledges that ultimately could potentially and ideally lead to our liberation as, as a people to gain some sort of foothold again. And to develop strong backbones, right? Because oppression literally forces us to the ground. And some of our communities, some of our people, like it's, it's very difficult for us to stand on our feet again. But when you begin to realize and identify the conditions, and like you're saying, like apply the science, you begin to get like a situational awareness. You begin to get like a clarity of, of why the world is the w- way it is and what's really taking place. And that could be applied like that could be applied to making conscious choices, uh, fostering value systems, fostering belief systems around your dinner table, like how we're raising our children to be anti-capitalist and anti-colonial, right? That's all informed by the experiences and the theory that exists as a form of resistance. So I'm definitely like on point with, with what you're saying and, and agree with that. And I don't know where it comes from, like why certain people tend to hate uh, theory or hate reading and writing probably likely tied to colonial trauma or something like me being an instructor. I, I have family members who hate me or I wouldn't say hate me, but um, are a little bit critical of me because I am an instructor, but I'm not their like grade 10 English teacher. You know what I mean? That, that, that failed them or something. Um, we definitely need to uh, uh, foster a sense of critical thought and analysis and a sense of uh, political literacy and economic literacy in our people that isn't based in entrepreneurship or that isn't pace, based in like settler colonial um, politics uh, or nationalism. Uh, we really need to begin to, uh, again, like foster, again, like the resistance. Yeah. Derek, do you have anything to say before we go into contradictions? Um, sure. How Marxism fits into the colonial theory? Yeah, I was going to say that this is probably a good opportunity to talk about what Marx, just quickly maybe go over what Marx contributed. Like Mark, before Marx, there were there was, you know, his influences in Hegel uh, and in um, Adam Smith and David Ricardo from the economic side. And, you know, what Marx brought what what he did that was novel in in his theorizing was uh analyzing european capitalism so it's like he analyzes you know, euro, euro colonial capitalism rather because it you know it all developed together like the europe developed with the settler colonies obviously europe benefited greatly from the extraction and slave trade of of the west um and that's that's what marx analyzes the class character the class characteristics of european society and of capitalism which we all live under now you know we all live under a euro colonial capitalist uh society so it's incredible that makes it valuable obviously i you know of course i'm sure i don't have to explain to everyone how that could be useful like to be able to analyze the contradictions of capital uh 
you know, labor theory of value is just, you know, obviously a, a great way to, uh, to analyze, you know, profit extraction from labor. Um, and yeah, yeah. Everything up through the second and third, uh, volumes of capital where he goes over, uh, finance capital and you know how how capital you know um, reproduces essentially and and all of the other things like fi financial markets uh it goes into like kind of financial market type stuff uh financial engineering um but yeah that's obviously very useful. He does, however, you know, we we're talking about decolonial theory earlier. You know, he only goes so much into, you know, the the colonial contradictions. You know, what, what a lot of what we do, you know, especially Rick. You know, you've done a ton of work in digging through uh, Marx and Lenin's work, finding, you know, where where he really talks about this and obviously the, the the person who did the most in this uh in this regard is kevin b anderson um and that you know you kind of have to dig and look at you know texts other than capital to find what marx was thinking about and writing about in terms of the colonies and you know he's talk talked a bit about india right and uh, you know, at first he had chauvinist ideas of, about the colonies and then came around later to, you know, recognize that way maybe there's not a unilinear path to development. Uh, there are maybe all of these stages through which European society progresses from capitalism to socialism doesn't apply to the whole, the rest of the world, maybe, you know, outside of Europe, maybe we can have a different path to development, which obviously is the case, you know, we don't have to follow the Euro-colonial model of development to build a society, like, obviously, uh, it comes with a, a bunch of problems, you know, Euro-colonial societies, arguably, I mean, just demonstrably destroying the planet, so... You know, how is that a good model of uh, development? But yeah, so Marxism obviously is a great tool, has its limits, as Fanon basically said. You know, the, in, in the colonies, the, super the base is the superstructure. And the, you know, that's, that's his way of saying that colonialism is the primary contradiction. You know, it comes before class you know, purely economic class distinctions, uh, you know, because, you know, there's not, there's no indigenous bourgeoisie, like there's no, maybe there's a couple rich native people, maybe there's a couple rich black people in the U.S., like they're not part of the power structure, like, they, you know, what do we got, uh, we got Jay-Z, you know, Jay-Z is not pulling the strings, uh, uh, he, you know, what does he own? I don't think he owns any factories. Maybe, maybe he does. Maybe he owns a factory or two. You know, you could call him a capitalist, but a petty capitalist at best. You know, maybe he's worth a billion dollars, but 
that doesn't make him industrial capitalist. Uh, so what you know when we're talking about cap- capitalism and and uh, in the colonies, you know, we're also talking about we're we're primarily talking about racial based capitalism, like with the, you know the racial distinction that the the dividing of of humans into races that was the idea of Europeans uh, made made for specific class distinctions more of a racial caste system than uh, the black and white you know pro- capitalist and proletariat uh, and peasantry contradiction that that is uh, you know the the Marxist mm-hmm. uh, analytical framework yeah yeah I do want to say go ahead go ahead Martin I was going to say, yeah, that's that's definitely why like we should jump into the, the conversation around theory and Marxism is because we could measure again, we get this panoramic view. But you ask like like I like how Derek highlighted um, that there's like there technically isn't an, an indigenous bourgeoisie. I mean, I always argue there's tons of compradors who are invested in neoliberalism and colonialism and maintain it. But when you ask them to explain conditions it's very challenging for them to, to explain it. Like it's very challenging for them to explain capitalism other than, you know, flawed value systems or wanting to get rich. It's almost like asking a a fish to explain water. Um, They're invested in settler colonialism. And that's why I feel like, again, this, like why, why we should approach this theory really um, consciously and at the same time critically to utilize it in a way where we could look at our conditions and find a way to navigate and ultimately invest in wayfinding as opposed to investing in subscribing. I also like how you said, um, our highlighted, um, you know, for me, which was a reference to Fanon too, where you talked about how we don't necessarily need to catch up or copy anybody. Like we could come up with our own, our own way of doing things um, here in, in the Americas for lack of a better word. Uh, But literally like the Fanonian quote was, uh, we don't have to catch up with anyone um, in America caught up to Europe and ultimately in some cases surpassed them with their imperialist project. So we have to be very mindful. And part of being mindful is again, knowing what we're navigating and being able to identify the problems um, because I always, you know, poke fun of, you know, the, the get rich quick type of natives, influencer natives. Um, they don't have a grasp on theory and they can't necessarily explain what we're talking about right now like they already probably like closed the podcast they didn't get this far in <laughs> yeah <like> yeah <laughs> yeah but we'll, we'll talk about that soon with uh, howard adams cultural nationalism right i do want to bring up so people that are listening derek is talking about mark of the Mar- margins by kevin b anderson and the document uh is uh it's in the podcast share drive is uh it's titled uh, would Lenin or and or Stalin support the idea of decolonization? And I go through like twelve different. I actually spent a whole month going through all my Lenin stuff, going through the Stalin stuff, and pulling quotes out. There's like sixty plus quotes in there that that support uh, the idea of decolonization. Um, you know, but because I, I I got really tired of people um, quoting Lenin. Right, and in a way to be like, decolonization is a stupid idea. Lenin said this, and this is why it's stupid. 
right? So I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Let me go into my garage <laughs> and take my books out of my boxes, right? <laughs> and go through them. And I, and I did. And I, when I went through them, I was like, how, how did I not see this before? So I had stuff highlighted and I was like, I miss a lot of stuff. And sometimes you have to read stuff more than once, obviously, you know? So, and one thing that... Um, we, you know, I was going to read off the four basic methodological rules of dialectical materialism. People can read it on their own, right? You, you, you can Google that, you know, there's the book, The Principle Contradiction, which I brought up, and it, it does a really good job uh, outlining the four rules. But there's one thing, one topic that I always bring up, and I brought up this week a lot, because, you know, this is uh, October, November of 2023, we have the Palestine situation, Right, going on, you know, with the genocide of Palestine is going on right now, and I always bring up that, uh, you know, seller colonization is a primary contradiction within seller states. Israel is a seller state. The U.S. is a seller state. Canada, Australia, Mexico. You know, so let's. I'm going to read um, a quote by Mao from On Contradiction. So, and I quote, if in any process, there are a number of contradiction, one of them must be the principal contradiction playing the leading and decisive role, while the rest occupy secondary or subordinate position. Therefore, in studying any complex process in which there are two or more contradictions, we must devote every effort to finding its principal contradiction. Once this principle contradiction is grasped, all problems can be easily resolved, end quote, Mao. You know, and that's something I think is a science of Marxism. So you find the main problem. I call it the main contradiction and people, you know, got on me to it. Main primary, main primary, same shit, okay? So yeah. <laughs> my, yeah. my, my thing is uh, the main contradiction on, in North America is seller colonization. It is not capitalism. You may think it's capitalism because the seller stays a capitalist uh, state, but it's not. Mm. If you get rid of capitalism and you replace the seller state with the Marxist seller state, seller colonization still fucking exists, right? Yeah. So the main contradiction is seller colonization. Mm -hmm. and, you, and people might say, how can a Marxist state be seller colonial? Well, because, you know, how can it not, right? I mean, the, the, once right now that the state functions on a guardian and war relationship, which goes into native law, which goes Cherokee mm -hmm. versus Georgia, 1831, right? The, the, part of the Marshall Trilogy is the second case of the Marshall Trilogy. People have to understand indigenous history to understand the primary contradiction. You have to understand the Marshall Trilogy. And uh, I did, I want to repost the episodes about that. But the University of Oklahoma, if you Google Marshall Trilogy on YouTube, has really good lectures on that, right? But guardian war relationship is, you know, we, there are internal colonies, there's indigenous sovereign nations in the U.S., but there's a federal government, which is a settler colonial government, and they consider themselves the guardian like our parents, and we're like children, they're warm. So if you have a Marxist state that's also a guardian, when, you know, in, indigenous nations are, are, are wards, that's still a colonial relationship. That's still settler mm -hmm. colonization. 
So people have to understand for real liberation to happen on this continent, the settler state has to be abolished and sovereignty needs to be established. Full total sovereignty needs to be established to the sovereign indigenous nations on this continent. And just them, Derek, you have your hand up. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, you know, re reinforce your point there and and just mention that it's all in the language. The language that you use is everything. You can basically tell people's positions on like the national, what we're talking about here mostly is like the national and colonial question as it pertains to this the settler colonies, which is, you know, basically a debate whether or not non-indigenous people get to have like a particular especially colonizers get to have some form of state power after you know this this hypothetical revolution um and it's and this is this speaks to or earlier we were talking about you know the people who are aesthetically oriented i'll say you know people more prone to performative gestures rather than engaging in reality and you know that this is what this this kind of thinking which is like to me an aesthetic based way of thinking that where you know these people will get hammer and sickle tattoos and you know like sport soviet aesthetics like I, i'm a big fan of the soviet union but like the fact that this, it, it, it's covered very well by Kim Il-sung uh, what this is. It's called dogmatism and also adventurism. Uh, you know, also uh, formalism, like there has to be this formal way of, of politically developing, like, and it has, has to be exactly as the Bolsheviks did it in in the soviet soviet union when that's just frank frankly the the ussr the the bolshevik revolution those those material conditions of russia have had some uh some parallels russia was a colonial power before the revolution um but it's just flat out not applicable to the settler colonial situation that it's a far more applicable uh model for revolution would be algeria you know where settler colonies that had anti-colonial revolutions so it's like the fact that people do don't use the same verbiage that they use like for instance and just to say uh free palestine and israel shouldn't exist israel is a european settler colony you know they're uh, massacring i think the official death toll is just just to mention what's happening right now the official death toll to my uh to my memory i think is about seven thousand people have have been martyred uh by the colonizers uh by the genocidal israeli colonizers who don't belong uh, you know don't don't should not have an estate on that land. Um, yeah, uh, like 
the how can you use different like every everyone seems to understand the language that you use when we talk about Palestine. We're not talking about capitalism, right? You know, you know, we're not really talking about labor exploitation when we're talking about what's happening in Palestine. We're talking about an oppressed nation of people, an occupied, oppressed nation of people. And we use different people, supposed socialists, communists, you know, these, for, usually it's uh, this orthodox Marxist tendency uh, and all the associated, you know, like Eurocentric revolutionary thought, um, <laughs> all of those tendencies. Um, they will talk about the United States and Canada and Mexico purely in Marxist economic terms, Marxist-Leninist economic terms, even though Lenin, Lenin uh, perhaps you could say, addressed the colonial situation a bit more, I'd say, Stalin even more so in in the Soviet Union. We've said this a bunch of times, I think, on the pod. But um, yeah, just just to say that this, yeah, I I think that that pretty much gets gets at it. Like, you know, this is, but we need we need to speak about the U.S. and Canada the way we speak about Palestine, the way we the way we would speak about Rhodesia. Or the boar, the boars in South Africa, like that's that's a model that of revolution, you know, because it's decolonization of a settler colony. That's more applicable to our situation than the USSR is, you know. As much as there is to learn from the USSR and Lenin and Stalin, their revolution was very different than what it would look like here. It would look like here, like what what Zimbabwe looked like. You know, like who who would we be fighting in the case of a revolution? It would be white militias. Uh, it, it, that should be obvious, especially given the fact that many white Americans went to fight with the Rhodesians in the Rhodesian Bush War against the Zimbabweans. So this is like quite clear what the everyone should know. It's it's quite obvious, and anyone who pretends not to know, I think, is just obviously obscuring the reality of what it is like this is a white supremacist settler colony that is continuing to do it's it's not as accelerated of a genocide as what's happening in palestine right now but it is a slow genocide after a more a period of accelerated genocide that happened in this hemisphere and huge huge cases of genocide are still happening to the state, the U- United States, all these settler colonies are still doing eugenics. They're, you know, you know, I, I shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to tell people what happened with the residential schools and what, you know, what's still being, uh, what's still coming out about that. Um, the just MMIW, just the list goes on. They like, was st- sterilizing people. Um, yeah, it's, it, and the, it, eugenicist immigration policy i'll say that you know we've got ukrainians coming over here by the by the plane load uh but you know brown people can't get asylum or uh yeah or or you know any any sort of like easy immigration here you know there's still it's the they're still engineering a european population 
in this hemisphere in all of the other settler colonies. It's not a thing of the past, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and I'll leave it there. Yeah, thank you. Um, I want to move forward a little bit because we're in an hour and 15 minutes. I don't want to take too much time. I know it's getting later over there. Um, so, you know, when now we have, we all describe why Marxism is important, you know, with decolonial theory. Oh, it's a tool, you know. Um, you know, and then we have, you know, some native people that are indigenous anarchists, or, you know, and I have my thoughts on anarchism, you know, um, but I'm not gonna, you know, harper on it. Um, I, I, you know, and I think, so the issue I see a lot is indigenous peoples, indigenous scholars, a lot of them are not Marxist, right? Decolonial Marxist. So what happens is they will address settler colonization and a settler Marxist will say, is that, is that indigenous scholar Marxist? Oh, they're not. So I don't want to hear what they have to say. Right. And to me, that's a really wrong way of, of, of really thinking or seeing yeah. the contradictions because indigenous people and the black community, you know, we are dealing, we're addressing contradictions that have, that are affected, you know, are brought by from cellular colonization. And then, you know, just because they're not Marxist doesn't mean you need to push them aside. Right. So and I talked to, I talked to uh, Tayaki Alfred. Uh, on on another podcast I did a couple of weeks ago about this, and he had a really good response. But then you know, it, it's a, it's a double edged sword. So like, sellers want us to be purist, pure Marxist, you know, totally knowledgeable in everything Lenin and Marx said, right? Even though even though they don't know everything <laughs> that Lenin and Marx said, at the same time, um, Walter Rodney brings up a good point about how. You know, in some indigenous or you know, in some people, some indigenous communities, you know, they, uh, they, you know, bask in their ignorance of Marxism. They dismiss it. And it's on page thirty-five in Decolonial Marxism by Walter Rodney, right? And I think this is, it's really concerning because on one hand, I talk about decolonial Marxism. You know, as we said earlier, you know, some natives will say, "Oh, that's in." a European uh, ideology, what we don't need it. I described already why it's essential, but you know, at the same time, anarchism is a, is a European ideology. It, it came about the same time as Marxism with a person that was in the bar with Marx, right? It was like Marx Wadio, whatever, the Mario Wadio. <laughs> so it's like his <laughs> twin brother, cousin, they look alike. But you know, it's one of those things that you know, to me, it's weird how indigenous people would dismiss Marxism, but then embrace anarchism. That's also a colonial, you know, uh, ideology. But that's, you know, my thing. But there's something that Howard Adams brought up, right? And it's called cultural nationalism. Do you want to read that? Do you have that? Um, you're, you know, you're a better reader than I am. But, you know, he, he talks about um, how natives, they will, you know, use culture to quote-unquote decolonize, but not challenge the colonial power structure when they, you know, they separate themselves from actually learning radical uh, ideologies that should, mm -hmm. would liberate them. Do you want to read it? Read it or do you have um, it? I don't know. I got it up on here right now. Okay, let me get it. 
Um, but yeah, uh, it's page 170 on Prison of Grass. I got it. Let me get it. I'm sorry. People are listening are like, what the hell? Uh, okay, here. cultural nationalism. It's a reaction, reactionary nationalism that forms part of the ideology of imperialism. It is adopted by or imposed on the third world people in their colonized state, and it involves the revival of indigenous native traditions and tribalism. Today, in our awakening, many Indians of Canada are returning to native religion and tribal rituals. The danger in, in this is that it might begin to sever any link with any progressive liberation ideology. The idea that a return to tradition, traditional Indian custom and worship will free us from the shackles of colonial domination is deceptive. A return to this kind of traditional worship is a reactionary move and leads to, to greater oppression rather than to liberation. Cultural nationalism is more than behaving and believing as traditional Indians. It is, it is a return to extreme separatism in the hope that colonial oppression would automatically go away. Deficits mm -hmm. upon worshiping and the performance of ritual behavior, not upon politics and liberation, because cultural nationalism insists on excluding, excluding political issues, uh, political issues, Indians and Métis accept their colonized political condition without challenging them. It perpetuates the racist idea of the Indian in their place and it's now allow them to develop a radical consciousness or reorganized culture that will be in harmony with liberation." Mm -hmm. End quote. Do I need to say, Mylon? What do I need to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Howard Adams, he, he was at University of Saskatchewan where I'm at, and, and ultimately he, he did leave the prairie and head down to, I believe, Berkeley. Um, and a lot of his power, I feel, comes from understanding, you know, the theory of uh, Marxism, um, you know, making reference to Fanon uh, at a time when up here, like technically no one was really diving that deep into that sort of political conversation. Um, but one of the best ways to highlight cultural nationalism is through reconciliation, like the reconciliation project today. And what reconciliation is doing in Canada is sort of like this, this hark on obviously like this, you know, Christian concept of reconciling and then all this stuff. But what it's really harking on and exploiting is the cultural representation of who we are as a people to the point of romanticizing it to the point of where now we're seeing people position themselves as cultural practitioners on the forefront of what should be a very real political conversation around justice, around deconstructing political, economic, settler, colonial structures. And this cultural nationalism is showing up in very weird ways. Uh, like it's showing up in very weird ways where now you're seeing like the hyper um, representation of indigenous spirituality, of indigenous value systems, almost to the point of noble savagery. And with that exposure, with exposing these things, you're seeing like pretendians emerge now, like tons of pretendians yeah. replicate this rhetoric, replicate these philosophies. Like for me personally, and even for my team with Radical Narrative, we don't necessarily talk about our spirituality at all. <laughs> like, like we don't talk about it. Uh, we don't position it. We don't, we don't, we don't necessarily like 
we keep the sacred sacred, so to speak, in terms of our practices and our belief systems. And when you listen to radical narrative, you kind of get these very good social, political, economic commentaries emerge outside of having to position our spirituality, like our culture. Right. And there's even some people like we like, honestly, radical narrative isn't even positioned as an indigenous podcast. Right? Like, like it, it comes across in terms of the content that, oh, these people are legit, but we're not like exploiting ourselves to get our message out there. But with cultural nationalism, Howard Adams, definitely on point with that, definitely on point. And that's why you're starting to see like, you know, pretendings show up. You're starting to see like indigenous TikTok take off with a bunch of weird, which I what I would say is really weird, romanticized, noble, savage stuff. And so where's the where's our political activists that are legitimately conscious of the conditions that we're under, that are legitimately navigating that to the point of resistance, to the point of organizing liberation. And of course, like making making reference to Fanon, like Fanon knew this too. And Howard Adams, you know, being a scholar of Fanon, reading Fanon, uh, Fanon, his one, one of the go-to quotes I always refer to, and I'm probably messing it up, is that you'll never put colonialism to shame by um, presenting cultural treasures under its nose. Like it knows full well that it's exploiting cultural representation um, because it does hinder political mobilization. And, and that's something we need to really be, be aware of as indigenous people. Um, and I know like for me, like I spent some time, I got to visit the Zapatistas and Chiapas and I'll make a little reference of them. Um, I'll make reference to one of my, the guardian, like the, the guardian that had to stick by me while I was there in, in their community. And it took a while for us to warm up and buddy up. And I, and I'm not fluent in Spanish. Like I don't even, I wouldn't even say I don't, I don't speak Spanish at all. So I was using like my Google translator app and I, and I was using a dictionary to explain to him, but probably like day two in, in terms of being in this community, he started to realize like, I'm different than the anarchists showing up. I'm different than like the white people showing up. Uh, and, and we started to sort of do translation and translators discuss who I was and where we came from and where he, who he was and where he came from. And I'll show him pictures of my community, like my horses, you know, how I dance and things. And he started to realize, Oh, Hey, this guy's native. Right. And we hit it off. And our translator kind of got in on this really cool conversation because he highlighted, and his name was David. I don't know if that was his real name. Uh, he highlighted how a lot of their political mobilizing and, and conscious effort to create this political project was to protect cultural elements from being exploited and being impacted. And he said they still do their dances in the jungle. Some of his, because he was more tribal, right? He was more on the tribal side of his spirituality, whereas there's, there's Zapatistas who are more and like in the church side of things. He was more on the tribal side of things. And he said, yeah, we still do our dances in the jungle. We still have our, our, our medicinal and our um, medicine people in the jungle. And, and a lot of what we do here serves to protect them. And I was really fascinated to me because in Canada, it's almost backwards now. It's backwards because now we're taking what's most sacred to our people, our value systems, our spirituality, even to certain degrees, our elders, and putting them on the forefront of a colonial relationship. Whereas in, in Zapatista territory, it was backwards. They're actively protecting you know, their culture, their spirituality. And I feel like Howard Adams was definitely on point. Like his analysis was on point in, in context to, to being able to identify that. Um, 
and again, it's falling victim to settler colonialism, where now there's pretendians, and now there's people exploiting that. Um, and it, and obviously, like we're dealing with the, the hangover of residential schools. So, a lot of you know some people who are rediscovering who they are, aren't necessarily politically conscious, are not aware of how colonialism specifically exploiting um, value systems and belief systems to legitimize itself. Um, and this is where like peace narratives come into play. This is where value systems come into play that that actively disrupt any form of real resistance or political organizing to the point of where, no, you have to get along with these people. No, we're supposed to love one another. No, we're supposed to, um, um, like violence is in our way, right? And interestingly enough, you know, the conversation around Buffy St. Marie was <laughs> that she actively promoted peace, <laughs> that our people aren't a violent people and that's a perfect example oh, I thought of that how cultural too. nationalism <laughs> yeah of how cultural nationalism ultimately impacts any political mobilizing right and and you know the conversation of her coming out as and being identified as pretendian now very problematic very problematic for her to promote that philosophy all throughout the 60s 70s 80s and 90s and up until now and it was a direct hindrance to political mobilizing because who out there assumed that Buffy was native and said, oh, you know, Buffy St. Marie said, uh, we're a peaceful people, not to resort to violence, not to be politically radical. It's it's wild. <laughs> it's really yeah. wild. Yeah. That, I think that what you're saying goes into the pillar of cultural when I, when I brought up the hyper uh, individualism. You know, I think... Uh, a lot of social native social media to me is weird, especially the ones that promote uh, decolonial thought, but it's very like liberal bullshit. You know, exactly. like decolonize yourself, get decolonize this, decolonize that. Oh, buy a shirt that says decolonize on it. Like, what does that really do to help our yeah. people? Wearing a fucking shirt that says decolonize. Exactly. On it. You know, it's just, yeah. it's just co-opting. Uh, you know, decolonial narr- uh, terminology and, and, and you know, um, gaining monetary profit from it. And the conversation about Britannians is a really big one. And people think I was a wacko for talking about this, you know, for a long time, especially with the Chicano yeah. situation. But, you know, mm-hmm. settlers pretending to be natives and disrupting decolonial theory is a fucking really big problem. Right, because we have yeah. pretendians, a lot of pretendians that were in academics in Canada and in the U.S. You exactly. know, and these people, you know, they they really like make. I guess that they 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 muddy the the picture or they you know distort the picture of what decolonization really is. So on one hand, we have settlers that are already distorting what liberation is for us, right? They're class reductionists. On the other hand, we have people pretending to be natives that are also distorting what liberation looks like for us, you know, which is decolonization. Yeah. And then we have to fight between the two. We're like in a different. We're in a different front we're fighting in different fronts we're fighting on the front against settlers and we're fighting a front within our own community because yeah. these people are causing trauma in our community and they're causing people to fight each other in our community exactly. oh they're native oh no they're not native oh i don't, I don't want to talk to you no more even though they're family yeah. members exactly <laughs> and to me it's odd because it's you know we should uh get rid of people in our you know that are within to me that they they're spies you know, yeah. these, these, these settlers to bring, pretend to be natives, whether they work for the settler state or not, to me, they, they work like spies because they, mm-hmm. they just like you said, they romanticize things and they're, or, or their, their vision of what 
uh, indigeneity is or what how we should be working or to, towards liberation and they distort it. To me, it's real sick. It's really sickening because uh, in my point of view, uh, decolonial theory on this continent is lacking. And I feel yeah. like a lot of it is lacking because people have, especially pretendians, have made it this way. We, I think we should have been a lot further within our liberation, wow. you know, in my yeah. point of view. But, I agree. So I think when when you see Native people talking about race shifting, talking about pretendianism, or, you know, mm-hmm. as a settler listening to this, you should know that's a very serious topic. You should actually mm-hmm. know if a person that's talking about decolonial theory that's claiming to be, na- be Native is actually Native. Exactly. Because if, if they're not, then you're taking notes from the wrong fucking person. Totally. Totally. And I know, I know, like, and and I know you highlighted through your, your social media is that we've been doing this work for a while. Like we're coming from the lived experience. And now all of a sudden there's like like settlers who decide to be leftists positioning themselves as experts on decolonial theory or experts on measuring these conditions. And it's it's fucking wild. It's like, man, I'm literally living on my reserve trying to figure out how to financially sustain myself right now. And and there's like rich you know, even while people who are have more money than me out there position themselves to talk about decolonization. And it's wild too, because even under the, the umbrella of reconciliation in Canada, they tend to position people who just got here last week or people who just figured out their identity and, and position them yeah. as somebody who is now an expert. And you have legitimate grassroots people who are living the experience, have access to oral history, have access to the knowledge, language, being marginalized from those conversations because legitimately these these people are positioned by people in power, are in academia, and like like chill out, man. Like like sure you're re- reconnecting or rediscovering, but you just got here last week, you know, yeah. <laughs> and now you're positioned as the expert. So they just exist in, in cult many like layers. But again, this is why. Like, I feel Howard Adams was on point with cultural nationalism. Like, we can't, like, honestly, we do come from a spirituality. We do have a culture, right? But I don't position myself as, like, you know, a fancy dancer or or a land-based practitioner or anything like that. <laughs> like, if people came out to the res and saw how I lived, sure, you could see that, what I do and how I live it. But I'm not going to be out there, like, platforming that. <laughs> I'm not going to be yeah. out there platforming that because we legitimately need political economic projects that that ultimately do lead to liberation and parading around. And, like, again, like, even this weird cultural decolonization, like, like literally, like, I, I, one of the reasons why I think a lot of Native influencers are glitching out with, with what's happening in Gaza is, is because they're selling T-shirts, like no one's in the right mind going to tell Palestinians to sell t-shirts to, yeah. to get their message out there. Right. So it's like the paradigm's completely limited in terms of even trying to begin to like fathom how decolonization and, and dealing with very physical oppression sits with these people because they're, they're in a very confined way of thinking and box that, that is very survivalist, that is very individualist. And again, doesn't, facilitate any sort of collective effort to pinpoint very real political economic mobilizing and projects that are rooted and coming from the grassroots people i agree with you i think uh so people are listening you know i I know you know sellers are listening to this and being like well that's a lot for me to digest you have to if you can digest lenin and read between the lines of what he said you can digest this so yeah um 
So I think uh, the next topic is what would a decolonial state on the North American continent look like? And this is a question that I get a lot from like settlers. They ask me what, so what does it mean to de decolonization? What does liberation really mean? So mm -hmm. I'm gonna spell it out for everybody, okay? Cool. So it's uh, abolishing the settler state, right? Uh, settler nationalisms, which is also the Canadian nationalism, yep. American nationalism, Mexican nationalism, and Chicano nationalism. There are settler constructs. Uh, so, um, so giving total sovereignty, total uh, control of the continent back to indigenous people. In my point of view, it looks like having a decolonial government. Mm -hmm. Looks like having a what I, what I call it is the decolonial Senate, right? It's one representative from each community. Here in the U.S., it's 674. And then if you add Canada, it's I don't know how many, like how many communities are in Canada? Dang, you put me on the spot. I, it's, it's I, I, think, of, I, I think I did it the math. I, I think there's the math, it was like yeah. 1,200 total in, in Canada, yeah. U.S., and Mexico, right? So there's like so, reserves, right? And then also tribal groups, right? So this, yeah. it's kind of hard to put a number on that for me right now. <laughs> so so there's around 1,000, right? So you have a, a government that has over 1,000 representatives from each community, right? And we have communities in the U.S. that are still not recognized. They're unrecognized communities, which, you know, we have to talk about them, you know, in other episodes. But there's one big factor in all of this is where do the descendants of Africans that were brought here forcefully through colonization fit in? In my point of view, I agree with the concept of New Africa and having, having a, a sovereign state with these descendants, right? So you have to prove that you come from these people because they were stripped from their cultures and their communities, right? And I think there should be just like, you know, there is, uh, you know, when I was younger, it wasn't 574 uh, native governments. It was a lot less, right? And it, it slowly came up in the U.S. More communities got recognized. So adding one more to the mix isn't going to, you know, hurt anything, you know? And people were, you know, the, that next question they asked me, what about territory? What where, where would the territory be? And I say it's going to be everywhere, all over their territories, all over North America. Because if you think about it, Africans were forcefully brought to the Americas, all over the Americas on both continents, right? Um, in South America, in in in, in uh, Mexico, in Mexico, as many forced Africans were brought into Mexico as the U.S. That's a lot, right? So having a sovereign nation, a new African sovereign nation, you know, you know, adding into the, like, like, like a Lego piece into the other, you know, into the Senate is not unrealistic, right? And then within this decolonial Senate, you know, we, you know, the Senate can talk about the issues and fixing things and restoring relationships. And, and you know, so I think, you know, talking about New Africa, let me go back to New Africa, it's really important because, you know, there's laws to protect Native children in the U.S., like the Indian Child Welfare Act, right? You know, conversation about, you know, protecting Black children I think it's lacking because, you know, with a native mm -hmm. ch child in the U.S. cannot just be taken from their home. It has a whole process. But yet there's mm -hmm. white, white settlers adopting 
black children, like a fetish, right? And to me, it's disgusting. You know, so I think the conversation about protecting black children, keeping them in their communities is super essential because, and, and then because I feel like white people adopt these, they, these uh, uh, you know, uh, black children, and then they try to brainwash them into some settler, you know, nonsense. And because they mm -hmm. do, they did it with native children for <laughs> a long time. So that's just one aspect that the colonial Senate can talk about is protecting, you know, uh, not just native children, indigenous children, but also black children from this type of, you know, predatory adoption, you know, from settlers. So, you know, I'm going to keep going. Uh, and another question is, um, who controls a Marxist seller who will say, who controls the means of productions? And I will say, not you. Right. I would say that the yeah. colonial Senate, because Marxists will say, you know, the state will control the state will control. That's cool. Then let the, the colonial state control the means of production. You, you know, you want to fetishize being a worker so bad. Be a worker. Right. Mm. <laughs> be a worker. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, yeah. That's what you fetishize. Do it. But you're you just because you outnumber us. It doesn't mean you get to control things. And I think that's where they, their brain, settlers' brains start to get, like, like you said, aggressive. They start thinking, mm -hmm. well, there's more of us. <clears throat> why should we, excuse me, <clears throat> why should we let Native people that are a small number, um, you know, uh, control the means of production? Well, you know, to me, it's a really disgusting thing to think about that you killed so many of us that now that you mm -hmm. outnumber us, that now the thought about liberation is not even a thought for you anymore, right? Oh, we outnumber you. We don't have to think about liberation or, you know, giving you back political power, economic power, because, you know, you, you're, you're almost gone anyways, right? Yeah. And I think that's a problem with settlers. And I think, you know, um, that's a very pro-white supremacist, pro-genocidal position to have. So yeah. giving the Native communities um, uh, the means of production, all these decolonial sentence, the means of production, it's, it's be honest with yourself. Your settler listening, be honest with yourself. That is real liberation. Right. It's not OK for you to say, you know, well, we could, you know, you get to control, uh, uh, you know, means of production because of workers. I don't give a fuck about that. Yeah. If you stay here, you get to be citizens of the decolonial Senate. You know, I mean, a decolonial state, but you're not going to be obviously not categorized as indigenous or or any of these decolonial nations, because I really do feel the sovereignty of the internal colonies, which is, you know, the, the sovereign indigenous nations, this system leaves that sovereignty in place. It doesn't strip indigenous uh, communities of their sovereignty. If anything, it enhances it so they all work together in a centralized government. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And yeah. the, the settlers can stay here, sorry, settlers can stay here, but they can just not have political power. You know what I'm saying? And if, you, if you're really a Marxist, and, you know, I, I believe that we can have a Marxist economy in this decolonial uh, society, you know, so I'm, all, I'm really cool with that. But the thing is, giving settlers power after, you know, they, you know, after, for, liber for us, for liberation, for us, it's kind of like, it's ironic. It's, I would like people to imagine 
Palestine, people say Palestine will be free from river to the sea, right? Oh, they say that shit, you know, free Palestine from river to the sea. So imagine that, you know, it actually does happen, right? In, you know, in the next year or whatever. So are you telling me that Palestinians become liberated? Should they turn around to Zionist and say, hey, we're going to give you a national sovereignty with us. They're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. They're going to be like, yo, these guys were our oppressors. Get the fuck out of here. Right. So, you know, for, for native people, for, for settlers here in the U.S. or, you know, North American continent, for settlers to think, you know, a revolution is going to happen. The natives are going to turn around and say, hey, we are going to give you guys national sovereignty alongside with us. I don't fucking agree with that. You know, another example is Bolivia. You know, the settlers run amok. They, they had a coup and they threw out Evo Morales, this whole plurinationalism idea where settlers are equal with us. Fuck that. I, I really do believe you have to strip settlers of their political power on lands they don't belong to. Plain and simple. And then if you talk about decolonization globally, eventually, if settlers go back to Europe because they want political power or whatever, you know, the full global decolonization will not happen until Europe is disarmed completely. And that's being very real, right? Because if you let Europe, it will always come back and try to do proxy wars, coups, you know, uh, financial domination. You ha we have to disarm Europe completely for the for global revolution, global decolonization. And expropriate them. Yeah, so I know I've said a lot, but does anybody want to jump in? I like it. Like I, I like I like the thought process, and and I feel like establishing these blueprints, right? Because they're blueprints, right? Even like even to position decolon decolonial theory and decolonization as 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 projects that took place over time. Um, and, and not a be all end all theory, right? It's not like a one, one thing fits all. We, we definitely need to recognize that we need these blueprints, right? And again, harking on Fanon, who has a blueprint quote, I don't know it off the top of my head, but he does say we need these blueprints, we need to create these blueprints to create the architecture that we need to be able to to, again, deconstruct settler colonialism, and replace it with what is inherently just and inherently correct in terms of addressing these wrongs and decolonization and and i and that's why i want to share the podcast uh, radical narrative which is i think like our second most listened to podcast on radical narrative now our number one episode most listened to is on sex and poetry with an indigenous female poet and then the second most listened is like indigenous marxism with decolonized buffalo so uh encourage people to go listen to those episodes but that's why i wanted you on there was to be articulate this and get people's thought processes to begin to come up with this alternative because i feel like we've been living in a box like like you pinpointed how pretendianism definitely oppressed us uh, to the point of where like it limited political organizing to where cultural nationalism limited political organizing to the point where people like like i did receive dms about that episode and they're like what was he talking about and I was like, well, we're envisioning a political future, like envisioning, envisioning something that's tangible and something that we could strive for. It's like pointing on the horizon and say, look, there's the marker. That's the direction we should go. Um, let's figure it out and get there. And, and that's why I like, I like what you said. And that's why I do support, obviously, you know, the, the articulation of these blueprints. Um, and it is, it is, it does like 
reprogram the brain to realize, oh shit, like there is power in terms of when we say decolonization, right? And we do need these projects because it's not just fancy words. Like we're not just like spitting fancy words and talking pretty out the mouth. We really do envision and want to survive. We want to make it to the future and have, you know, the alternative of, of the fuckery that we're dealing with. That's my thought. I want to reinforce what you said. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll hand it over to Derek to give some context to you because, yeah, I love Derek's truth bombs. I do want to say something before you jump in, Derek. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Yes, of course. So one thing, the reason why I started really thinking about this hardcore is because when I was at my undergrad at UC San Diego, uh, there was a class called decolonization. It was called decolonization. Right. And it was taught by a non-native professor. He's white. And the final, the final was imagine decolonization. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so everybody in my point of view, everybody except me, <laughs> failed that uh -huh. class. Right. Cause everybody gave a horrendous what decolonization means. And I talk about this in the yeah. podcast every episodes. Some dude came in and played the guitar and talked about like feudal, <laughs> feudal music versus, you know, like royal music or like peasant music. And I was like, what? In Europe. So when I thought about this, I was like, this is a serious question, right? This is back in 2014, you know, almost 10 years ago. And um, I was like, and I, actually, I made this blueprint, this whole decolonial center. I was like, I, I took, presented this in class. And the professor himself, the professor that was teaching decolonization class told me it was unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. main reason he said it was unrealistic was because sellers outnumber indigenous people, right? Mm -hmm. and I know that's a barrier, but to mm -hmm. think... You know, something's unrealistic. I don't really believe it. And what I said in that class is the same thing you said about the blueprints. It's like GPS. If we're talking yeah. about decolonization or liberation ourselves, we have to know what it looks like. It's like me going to tell GPS, take me to a food store. And the GPS is going to give you a bunch of food places, right? But you have to pick one specific, like, you know, Taco Bell, where it's like 2 a.m. You're high as fuck. Taco Bell, right? And then it takes you to Taco Bell. It gives you a roadmap how to get there. And my point of view is we have to know what decolonization looks like. That means after the seller state's gone, after capitalism is gone, right? And what does that mean for our sovereignty with all these hundreds of sovereign native nations on this continent, plus uh, the descendants of Africans that were brought here and their sovereignty and with, and also settlers because they're gonna benefit from this. All that together, right? And destroying the pillars of settler colonization, all that together, we have to know what it looks like. So all these people online that talk about decolonize this, decolonize that, oh, here's my Patreon, taking people's money and really not, and just, monetizing the word decolonization of decolonize to me yeah. is limiting and hindering actual decolonization right yeah. so Derek, yeah. go ahead sorry yeah i'm sorry uh i think there's a lot um of parallels between um africa and and this hemisphere and, and what and, and the similar concepts that could be applied, exact, 
basically exactly what you're saying. Like, perhaps can, you know, you know, I don't want to use Pan American because I don't want to give any uh, recognition to Mr. Vespucci. Uh, but uh, you could say Pan Indigenous, but not in a cultural Pan Indigenous. Obviously, cultural Pan Indigeneity is a problem. And it's like a, you know, obviously, it's like a pretty much Orientalist conceptualization of Indigenous people. Uh, but but more of a pan-indigenous in terms of political pan-indigeneity, like, like in, in the sense that in the, uh, in the meaning that pan-Africans use pan-Africa, like, you know, that doesn't mean like culturally pan-African where they all, you know, all Africans will adopt like a common culture and language or something, but it means that, you know, they organize the continent into a economic block or a and into a you know just into an entity that can uh protect its own interests and you know protect the sovereignty of the indigenous peoples of africa and you know advance its interests on the global stage without you know the the reason we have to do this is, you know, as you're alluding to, Rick, when you're talking about how, you know, Europe has to be pacified, has to be, you know, has to be made, you know, ha has to be rendered harmless in some way or another, you know, it has to be demilitarized. Uh, it Justice would be expropriating Europe of much of its wealth what much of its ill-gotten wealth uh, in the form of reparations uh, and to, to the whole world, to the whole, uh, yeah, to the rest of, you know, not to non-Europe. Um, but, you know, this, and this is why, you know, Pan-Africanism is a movement because it's uh, that, for that reason, because, for, for the practical reason of organizing, you know, common interests of Africans to or to establish themselves and assert their sovereignty and their uh, and their right to, you know, not be exploited on the global stage economically. Uh, it's the same. It, it's the same motivations that it would be for this continent. And yeah, so all so also as you know, on top of that, the, the, the divisions, the national divisions of Africa don't really make sense. Like they, or they don't, they flat out don't make sense. They, the borders, the nations, the, you know, this European con uh, nation states. Um, yeah. This European concept of nation states doesn't apply to Africa in the way that the Berlin conference split up the continent with, with its colonial borders. The same, I the same concept I think applies to this hemisphere is that you know, we've talked particularly about this continent and, you know, the other settler colonies as well, uh, in Oceania, and, um, and, you know, 
even Palestine, uh, this this concept applies. Although that's just a, a you know that's not a continent, um, you know. But but yeah, that's I think that's what you're getting at, Rick. Right? You know, it's like you're we're, we're organizing this continent to you know operate in unison as as a trade block as a uh, you know to where you know I, it, all the indigenous you know groups you know it's a, you know we use the word nations i think for the lack of you know a better term you know in english uh you know we're, we're not necessarily you know, the European concept of nations doesn't necessarily apply to non-European societies. Uh, obviously, like the, on this continent, there's a bunch of shared territories between peoples. You know, borders don't really make sense. So, of course, you know, what makes the most sense is governing the continent as co collectively, um, which, as you both, I think, have alluded to, is uh, a long-held uh, modus operandi of a lot of indigenous peoples on this co continent, uh, you know, to act collectively and um, in symbiosis with each other's neighbors. So, you know, that I think, so I think those concepts have already been proven to be popular in Africa. I think they could be popular here. Uh, you know, the, the incentives are there where you know, Native people should want to be able to go to the global stage to have sovereignty, first of all, <laughs> you know, have all of our sovereignty back uh, and our land back, uh, but also to be free from oppression globally, you know, and ec economically and be able to, you know, assert our sovereignty and our uh, economic rights on the global stage, uh, which we're unable to do, obviously, under a colonial system. I do want to say something that you brought up. Um, I actually did a recording with Dr. Gregorian Gonzalez because, you know, the settler, settlers um, bring up something. It was Rainer. Rainer debated Haas, right? And Rainer told Haas that he believes the U.S. should be balkanized into little sections. To you know, every Native community should have their own section of piece of land, and that's problematic because a lot of our territories overlap, right? And you can't just put colonial type of borders yeah. uh, around tribal nations and be like, oh, now we're decolonized. We have our own little borders. That to me, that's just garbage. I, that's why I think a central indigenous Senate, you know, and we can, they can talk. I don't want to say, oh, you know, like districts should be drawn like this. That's something for the decolonial Senate to talk about. It's something like blood quantum and, and children and language revitalization, you know, all these things should be talked about in the decolonial Senate. I don't want to be saying they should talk about this because I'm not there. This is future concept. But the yeah. point is, is that the colonial Senate should be making decisions. And the concept of a border splitting the continent to colonial borders, it doesn't make sense. So yeah. I'm going to re-put that podcast up on the on you know the episode up on the podcast uh, with dr gregor gonzalez on indigenous borders the concept of indigenous borders alfred also talked about this if you google taiki Taiyaki alfred and put like 
I think it's like a territory, indigenous territory, something like that on, on um, YouTube. It comes up and has a really good lecture on that too, right? So, yeah. uh, but all these things is because settlers, their concept of territory and land and borders, you know, they carried on to their versions of liberation and our version of liberation is something totally different, yeah. right? So I mm -hmm. think... Maya, do you want to say something before I move forward? I don't want to like just jump forward. No, I, I love this conversation. I love this conversation, and I need it in my life, to be honest. <laughs> uh, um, and, and and like one thing we have to also remind listeners who are non-indigenous or just making their way to these conversations is that indigenous peoples have always strove for decolonization since time, like time of contact. Like we've always strove for the, the the alternative to the fuckery taking place, and and when you dive into the real history of the Americas, you begin to uncover that, and even the notion of sovereignty. I, I mean, for like I like how Derek said, for lack of a better word, we're using these words, but we did, we have been striving for a, a sense of sovereignty for quite some time, and even um, making reference to to you know platforming ourselves on on the world stage and different tribes doing that at certain points in time. Obviously, Iroquois Confederacy very well known for doing that out in out east is and 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 asserting sovereignty um but at the same time like making reference to the quote we shared with with howard adams i think prison of grass came out in the 1970s um one thing to to highlight is that prior to the 1970s here where he was making this political analysis there was very real political organizing in the early 1900s on the prairie very real political organizing taking place around a sense of sovereignty around a sense of wanting to politically and economically um establish a foothold in terms of, you know, dealing with the settler state and their oppression. But also we have to keep in mind that in the 1970s, you began to see residential school survivors, people who have been very violently and brutally oppressed, assume positions of government or assume positions of governance and leadership where cultural nationalism became the safety mechanism of rediscovering became the safety mechanism. So there was very real, like tangible political mobilizations in a lot of our territories, from a lot of our tribal groups that believed in, in this, an indigenous future that's rooted in autonomy, that's rooted in sovereignty, that's rooted in liberation. And I feel like that's why I love this conversation is that we're making our way back to the core element of decolonization, which is very real tangible blueprints around deconstructing settler colonial political economic systems that ultimately advocate for liberation, seek liberation and, and justice. That's why I really wanted to like hit that home too. Cause yeah, I mean, there is some uh, critiques of Howard Adams locally here, but for the most part, I definitely uh, love his work. I do want to bring up two really quick. Um, you know, the, you brought up that we, you know, uh, there, there's a misconception. There was a native organization that had a video that said that decolonial theory is not indigenous to North Americans from Africa. I would say that's wrong. Wow. That, that's actually anti-black racist. I don't want to be calling them out. You know, I'm not mm -hmm. like, oh, he's attacking this organization. I think that's very ignorant to say mm -hmm. because what I'm bringing to the table already existed what, what like 100 200 years ago with Tecumseh when he thought the idea of, of native communities owning the land 
different nations communally and not being able to sell land unless each nation agrees mm-hmm. to it. That's the same thing I, I'm bringing up. I, yeah. It's like I've been thinking about what should I call this version of this political theory? It's really Tecumseh, right? This, Which this is a, of, it's a confederation, right? Yeah. Would be the English word. Yeah, yeah. It, but you know, it's a Tecumseh style uh, of political ideology. I really do believe that they should be named that, right? Because yeah. because because we know, like you know, like uh, North Korea has Duce ideology. I think we should call it Tecumseh, right? Tecumseh uh, yeah. thought. That's right? a great idea. I, because I, I, I read. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Because I, I don't want to be like, oh, I came up with this. I didn't come up with this. This shit True. had already existed, and I don't want to be like. Yeah with my ego no this idea existed and that dude was ahead of his time by a long fucking time that dude i'm telling you right now if you read about tecumseh that he had it he Mm -hmm. his i mean obviously we don't have tecumseh's political writings on stuff like that but his what what's being wrote about him him saying that right like that's right there is is our future straight up you know it's it's, that's 100 true and yeah like you know tecumseh and looking at his his legacy it was really influential on me and also i guess i should i should state the obvious that tayage alfred was also my uh my master's advisor at indigenous governance and i know tecumseh was influential in his analysis and in his work too so yeah i like how you said that you know it, it is simply an echo of 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 what he was promoting and like i like also what you said that you know, balkanization of North America is not going to work because indigenous people, we've always had shared territories. And, you know, even the legacy to come say we, we're very mindful of our peaceful and diplomatic traditions amongst each other because of the, the language density, the even like there's even examples in North America where there's shared sacred sites. Right. Show me an example where that exists in, in Europe that survived very minimal you know but we do have this history of peace and diplomacy where our ancestral legacies our 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 relationship to this lands and territories proves historically also that we are capable of of achieving projects like this we are capable of fostering peace and diplomacy to have these political conversations and and yeah like echoing what we talked about earlier like we're not building guillotines here we're communicating we're having dialogue yeah and and that's what it means like that's the the emphasis of peace and diplomacy so to move forward a little bit before we move forward i do want to say this the colonial senate is is able to grow so let's say, you know, uh, Canada was the first to kind of like abolish settler colonization. They can build the colonial Senate. And then if, you know, U.S. and Mexico go next, that Senate can grow to represent those native, those indigenous peoples in those territories, right? So it's not just like a decolonial Senate only for the U.S. and another one for Canada, another one for Mexico. I believe one for the whole continent, a centralized government, you know, with all the indigenous sovereign nations having their own sovereignty within themselves, right? But at the same time, having representative in the central government. So before now that I'm moving forward, the last topic, the last like real heavy topic is uh, the different disinformation about decolonization, which is this means white genocide. It doesn't, because you can always move back to Europe. Right, nobody's yeah. talking about just like we said earlier. Nobody's talking about guillotining you or putting you in camps. Um, but you know, the whole there's another topic 
talking about shipping every all Europeans back to Europe. No, you can stay here if you want to contribute to society. But I have an asterisk. If you participated in white nationalist organizations, you shouldn't be shipped back because you're just mm -hmm. going to sabotage the, the settler state. If you participated in any type of police work for the settler state, you know, county, local sheriffs, town cops, ship you back. Because if you understand or you know the history of Operation Gladio, right? Operation Gladio in Europe, how, the, how the, a lot of the Nazis stayed as police officers or uh, uh, um, in governmental positions, then, you know, that's what I'm saying. You have to wipe clean everybody that was in the white supremacist, settler states, politician, or police needs to be shipped back to Europe, in my point of view, right? And then, uh, yeah, that's it before, before you know, we end it. Does anybody have words on that? I like what you said. Like, I, I definitely agree. Like, it definitely is like a way to to look at where we need to go in terms of mm -hmm. the future. But also, like, part of me from the indigenous spectrum is that I, I wonder who's going to be willing to go with Europeans back to Europe because we do have I, a legitimate Comprador problem <laughs> too. And uh, I feel that some people are have a more vested interest in maintaining settler colonialism uh, than than deconstructing it. And, and that's a mm -hmm. whole podcast that we need to to yeah. have eventually. Yeah. Hey, nobody's talking about killing anybody. I think you just these people are just like uh, projecting, you know, uh, on, on these things. Um, I really do think settlers can stay, and decolonization will actually benefit them if they really want to liberate a Marxist state and a decolonial state. It would help you. I actually, wouldn't mind. I mean, there's yeah. obviously, like I said, uh, uh, boundaries for settlers that boundaries they yeah. can't cross politically, but you can stay, man. Be stay and you know yeah. participate. Yeah, and like even if you look at our, our history of peace and diplomacy through treaty projects, like we, we agreed to certain relationships. And if you adhere to that relationship, like cool. But if you're not and actively like being genocidal and an asshole, of course, like man, get out of here, make some space, <laughs> give us some space. You need to bail. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the last, go ahead. So go ahead, Derek. I was just going to say, it's like you can look at um, like, as I keep harping on, uh, you just look at other examples of decolonization in Rhodesia. You know, I think I think it's I. Uh, Gerald Horn has a book down the, uh, the um, through the barrel of a gun. I think it is uh, about Zimbabwe, about the uh, Rhodesian Bush War. Uh, Zimbabwean war for independence um and the a lot of the colonizers obviously were the white nationalists obviously fought um I don't see a way around that here uh there's a lot of very angry racist white militias uh and you know that that really <laughs> makes up the 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 you know what what would be the reactionary militant force uh in the case of some sort of revolution but you know and uh, you know F, obviously ideally no one dies in any situation uh you know uh, it would be nice if decolonization could be not a violent phenomenon but you know there's that whole yeah. whole section of Fanon 
uh, about that um, in Wretched of the Earth. Uh, but, you know, uh, after decolonization, a lot of Rhodesians stayed in Zimbabwe. Uh, they, unfortunately, like you're talking, talked about at the beginning, at the top of the show, Rick, that uh, unless you dis, you know, dismantle the whole system, which is also the global system, which is why it's important you mentioned how we have to eventually go to Europe um, about these colonial contradictions uh the the mother the uh the mother that spawned all of these uh yeah revolting spawn as Gerald Horn would call them um yeah uh, they didn't that a lot of the Rhodesians you know as as is the case in a lot of post-colonial situations like in South Africa and the Boers as well even after you know in this so-called post-colonial era uh they maintained a lot of their colonial privileges like owning vast swaths of arable land all of the best farmland uh and this is because post-colonialism they still had to have a you know this sort of paternalistic relationship with europe um because they had become uh dependent on the colonial system uh but yeah a lot of a lot of colonizers uh, left after after uh, Zimbabwe got independence because you know once they lost their colonial privileges, you know it wasn't you know exactly where they wanted to live. A lot of them left to uh, Australia. Uh, a lot of them went to South Africa. Uh, a lot of them went back to Europe. But yeah, so uh, you know, I like you said, like. It's like, it's, it's, and as we talk about all the time, it's a fascinating case of projection when the, the, the colonizer, uh, accuses, uh, the colonized of aggression when, you know, especially like you were alluding to, uh, Mylan, you know, indigenous people of this continent were actually more friendly than possibly they should have been (laughs) to the colonizers. Uh, you know, even though it's just like, you know, the way to be, which is friendly, and you know, it's the colonizers. The colonized people aren't making the situation the way that it is. Uh, the colonizers are, and you know, it's incumbent upon them to be peaceful, uh, and to and to minimize violence, because their society is responsible for it. I do want to say, yeah, thank you for that. I do want to say that before we move forward, one last thing is that, um, you know, lately, because, you know, the, the topic of seller colonization is being brought up with Palestine, a lot of the right, uh, you know, the right wing on social media, they're bringing up Fernand. Like, look, Fernand talks about violence. He's so violent. All oh, decolonial theory, they're distorting what decolonial theory is or decolonization, and they're they're labeling it as violent and just too aggressive. But it's to me, it's, it's that that's irony because settler colonization is a is violent itself. You know, like Palestinians just want to live freely, and here is a stellar state committing genocide in front of the world. Right, so they're talking about oh no, that's going to be violence. Oh no, poor poor Israelis, or you know, they're they're going to see violence. Then they'll commit violence back. 
So, I mean, don't be the one initiating the violence. The, the, you know, the settler state of Israel is violent. You know, settler state of the U.S. is violent. Canada is violent. Mexico is violent towards indigenous. You know, all these states, settler states, Australia is violent, violent towards their indigenous, to all indigenous. And then they go outward and become imperialist. You know, all of Europe is imperialist together. They all now hold hands together after World War II and are just like a imperialist bloc. It's not just the U.S. anymore. It's all of Europe, you know? So don't talk about decolonization if you're a right-wing seller. If you're just a seller saying that decolonization is violent or say, it's, you know, it's bad because it's violent when the existence of colonization is violent itself in many different levels, we, which we talked about, the different pillars. So, you know... Get a different talking point. Uh, so the next topic is, where's a good place to start? This is the last topic. Where's a good place to start to read about the corner theory? I put on there, you have to understand indigenous black history, which Gerald Horn's really good on that. And it's like buying Deloria, Philip Deloria, you know, there's, then you have to understand native sovereignty. You have to, you have to understand, not, not just in the U.S., but like in Canada and Mexico as well, right? And so native law cases and the history of the cases and why that happened, right? And then for indigenous scholars, it's by Deloria Jr., Philip Deloria, Howard Adams, Tayaki Alfred, Kim Tauber for like, when you want to talk about the pretending stuff, it's Kim Tauber, Cersei Sturm. Uh, even he's not native, but they're in a row. Uh, there's also like uh, Glenn Cohart. I think Adams and Alfred are the two big decolonial indigenous authors in my point of view you really have to read Alfred's work right you really have to read it and understand it, right and if you don't you're really not going to <laughs> understand what the fuck I'm talking about because on my point of view Mylan said that Tecumseh is an influence on Alfred Alfred is a big influence on me Right, his work. I, I tell him that. I tell him that he's. I mean, Howard Adams is good, but I think Alfred is almost like a like a Lego piece. It's like the next level of the colonial, the colonial theory. And I, hopefully, I add onto it with this episode with other, other other works I do with me and other people. You know, and I think that's the point of creating this theory. Um, so for black authors, it's, you know, Gerald Horn, obviously. Uh, the king, the king of history, historical historical books. Fernand, Walter Rodney, Lawasi Lushaba. I put in George James, Harry Haywood, Bell Hooks, etc. Uh, also for non-native, non-black authors is Lenin, and actually read his stuff. You know Mao, Stalin, and of course Kevin B. Anderson's book Marks the Margins. Does anybody want to add that to finish this episode? No, that's a pretty extensive reading list. I mean, I the reason I love uh, talking to both of you too is that you both are very well read and even lead me into the direction of of doing more readings. And that's a that's a great place to start there for sure. Eric? Yeah, I, th I think that covers a, a a wide breadth of knowledge. Just that reading list right there. It's, it's plain okay. to digest. <laughs> Okay, well, um, we're going to end it here. If people are listening, you know, I know it's a lot to digest. And if you have questions, please ask. You can read, ask Derek. He goes under Plants for Non on Instagram. 
and he has the post scarcity podcast. You have Mylin at Radical Narrative. You know, you have me with the Conrad Buffalo uh, podcast. Uh, you know, just learn, you know, and I hope we can build something together, you know. So thank you for listening. So we're going to end it here. <laughs>